0: what do you expect of me as your minister? Well, maybe we ought to depersonalize that just a bit and ask, what do you expect your minister to do? I think you'd be surprised by the variety of answers you'd get to that question. Everyone, I think, assumes a preacher will preach even though not all would agree on what he should preach, how he should do it, or to whom it should be directed. But beyond that, how do you determine his effectiveness as a minister? Well, I believe that depends on your expectations. Is he there to serve you and to be your personal minister, to visit in your home on a regular basis and just be there in case you need him? Or is he to be a promoter, to promote the church and church activities in the community, to get people to join the church, support it, and and make it grow? Or is he to be a religious social worker, supported by the church, to keep kids off the street and marriages together and people speaking to one another? Or is He there to help you fulfill your ministry, to equip you and challenge you to be all that Christ expects you to be? Or is it all of the above plus more? I think you can see it would be difficult, if not impossible, for one man to meet all these expectations. So how do you judge the effectiveness of a man's ministry? And what should a man aim for if he wants to be an effective minister? Well, there are lots of books on leadership and how to establish priorities and reach goals. but Priorities and goals in the kingdom of God differ from those of the world. So where should a minister look for direction? Obviously, he should look to the most important book ever written on leadership, the Bible. And he should begin by simply looking for God's stated priorities and goals for his people. Then I think he should look for examples of those who have undoubtedly been effective in ministry. And in our passage for today, we find the premier example to emulate. Who could doubt the effectiveness of the ministry of the Apostle Paul? He was without a doubt the greatest preacher, missionary, theologian, and author the church has ever seen. And in concluding his letter to the Romans, Paul gives us insight into what made his ministry so effective. He's finished the doctrinal portion of this letter and is now merely wrapping it up, sharing with his readers his plans for the future and some personal requests and greetings. But in doing so, Paul gives us an intimate look at himself and his ministry. So let's examine this section this morning with a view to getting a picture of an effective minister. And the first thing we see is that an effective minister proclaims the word. Romans 15, starting with verse 14. "'And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness.' Filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. I mean, to admonish one another. <laughs> okay, way to go. <laughs> able to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, Ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul spoke and wrote powerfully, and he said some things that uh, people didn't like to hear. You know, I doubt that we have a complete record of the times he was run out of town and beaten or stoned. But even when proclaiming hard truth, he always tried to start out on a positive note. And that's what he does here. He began by praising the Christians in Rome. He noted that they were full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and were able to admonish one another. They were known for their good works. They understood God's will for them, and they were competent to counsel each other. That's a great way to start. And an effective minister will praise his people. He'll tell them what they're doing right and express pleasure over the good things that he sees in their lives. But he will never assume that his people don't need to hear again what needs to be done or be challenged to go even further with the Lord. You now, Paul understood that people tend to forget. So he wrote to remind them of some things. He told them again of the nature of sin and what Jesus had done and wants to do in their life. He told them how to let Jesus do what He wants to do and spelled out what they needed to do to make it happen. In fact, he ended up writing the most exhaustive teaching on salvation and sanctification to be found in Scripture, and he did it as a reminder. Have you ever had a deja vu moment while the preacher is preaching? I'm sure you have if you've been coming here for long. Marilyn and Tina both told me the six steps that lead to the acceptance of one another I covered in last week's sermon were already written in the margins of their Bible. (laughs) Well, a good preacher never assumes you remember everything you've heard before. And he doesn't hesitate to tell it to you again. And the things we tend to forget the quickest are the things we don't like to hear. The truth isn't always comforting or popular, but it has to be said. And Paul boldly stated the truth again. He knew not everyone would like to hear what he had to say, but he said it, and he made sure they remembered it. If a preacher is to be faithful to his calling, he has to preach the truth, all of it, over and over again. And that's why I preach expository sermons through Bible books and go through them more than once. You know, there are passages I probably would never preach on, even once, if I weren't forced to do so because of a commitment to preach through entire books. There's some verses I probably would avoid because they're hard to understand or tough to preach on or tough to accept. If I were free to hunt and peck my way through the Bible, I'd probably just pick out the passages that make for popular sermons and comfortably avoid the difficult and disturbing ones. But I can't do that. I've been called to proclaim the full counsel of God. And so had Paul. He said what he said and did what he did because he recognized he was accountable to God. God had commissioned him, gifted him, and given him a job to do. And he would have to answer to God for what he did. If a man is to be an effective minister, he must never lose sight of his calling or his accountability before God. But he can't just assume he's doing what God wants him to do. Sometimes we get confused about that, and our plans are thought to be God's plans. So we have to stop and evaluate what we're doing. Paul evaluated his ministry, and so will an effective minister, verses 17 through 19. He says, Therefore, as Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. I think the first thing we notice about Paul's evaluation of his ministry is that he did not take credit for his successes. He relied on the indwelling Christ to accomplish good through him, and he gave Christ the credit when good was accomplished. And the good he looked for was in the people to whom he ministered, not the programs he pulled off. Paul looked for changes in people's lives, and he evaluated his ministry on that basis. He said he could boast about what Christ was doing through him when he saw how the Gentiles were becoming obedient in word and deed. And I believe that's a valid criterion for evaluating a ministry. Now, some ministries are going to be more fruitful than others for a variety of reasons, but every minister should be able to see the difference the gospel he proclaims is making in at least some lives. Now, there are always going to be people who don't change. Even Jesus couldn't change everyone. And it's easy to focus on those who never grow and become discouraged. But we should always be able to find some who are growing in the Lord because of our ministry. If we can't, we're probably not doing what God wants us to do. Because he said his word would not come back void. Lives will be changed if we lift up Christ and faithfully preach his word. There's nothing more rewarding in the ministry than seeing some change for the better. Seeing what Christ can do in a man or a woman's life. And knowing that you had a hand in introducing them to each other. What a great joy that is. It's been my joy for 40-some years to see sometimes three generations of families evidence the change Christ brings into their life and their home. What an encouragement that is and what an affirmation that is of our ministry. Well, Paul could see what God was doing in the Gentiles' lives But even that didn't keep him from looking for additional evidence that God was at work. And as an apostle, he had the privilege of seeing signs and wonders taking place that confirmed his ministry. What a blessing that must have been. You know, in moments of disappointment and frustration, he could look beyond failures and setbacks and still see the obvious hand of God at work. Well, I'm not able to look back on signs and wonders for confirmation, but I believe I can see the hand of God at work in our ministry here. In spite of the fact that our attendance has fluctuated over the years and we're back to the same number we began with 47 years ago, we've always been able to meet our financial obligations and our giving to foreign missions and domestic ministries is higher now than it's ever been. And despite many of us growing older, we still have a wonderful mix of all ages actively involved in the life of our church. I think it's obvious that God is still at work in Chatham Christian Church. And I'm convinced that just as Paul experienced power and direction from the Spirit, so do we. Our leaders are convinced that we cannot be effective without the help of the Holy Spirit. So we look for the hand of God in ministry. We watch for doors He opens and closes and trust Him for the power to do what He sets before us to do. If we ever lose sight of the fact that we have a resource beyond ourselves and limit ourselves to what we think a small congregation of 150 or so can do, we will fail in ministry. And we should. An effective minister evaluates the work on a regular basis and he prioritizes the need. Let's read on. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named that I might not build upon another man's foundation, but as it is written They who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have often been hindered from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. We'll stop there. Paul's primary objectives were to preach to the lost and lay solid foundations. He had no desire to build on another man's foundation, so his work was primarily one of leading men to Christ, establishing congregations, and laying solid foundations in the lives of his recent converts. That meant some other things would have to take second place. He recognized, for one thing, that this would limit his enjoying the company of the saints. He just wouldn't be able to spend a lot of time visiting with those who had been Christians for years and who had no obvious need for counsel. That didn't mean that he thought they were unimportant or that he didn't like them or that he didn't desire to spend time with them, but he had to spend the bulk of his time with those who needed him those who were babes in Christ and needed care and guidance. The church in Rome had been established without his help, and the Christians there, for the most part, were growing as they should. They were able to teach and encourage one another. So Paul didn't feel his priority should be going to Rome. He assured the saints there of his love, He told them of his longing to come to them, but he expected them to understand and support his spending time elsewhere. He even said he hoped to pass through Rome, that uh, when he did so, they would help him financially to go on to someplace else, to go on to Spain, a, a new frontier for the gospel. Now, I imagine there were Christians in Rome who were hurt, Because Paul, the famous apostle and missionary, had never come to visit them. He had made several trips to the churches in Asia Minor and even lived in Ephesus for three years. So it looked like he had ignored the Christians in Rome. But Paul expected them to understand why he hadn't been there. And he assured them that when the opportunity arose for casual fellowship, he would take advantage of it. If a man is to be effective in the ministry, he must keep his priorities in order and even risk hurting a few feelings to get the job done that he's been called to do. When I first began a pulpit ministry out in Kansas, there was an older congregation in a retired farming community, and the preacher was expected to visit in homes all the time. And I tried for two years, I would go and I would sit in the homes of of beloved widows, and they would share their stories with me. And then I'd visit again, and they'd share the stories again and again. And I felt like that's what I had to do. And I'll never forget how I struggled to, to stay connected, I found myself falling asleep hearing their stories. And then I'd be worried about my sermon that I needed to be writing and people I needed to be seeing, but I had to get these expectations met. Finally, it dawned on me, you know, the church should be ministering to each other. You know, it it isn't just the preacher's job to care for people. They should be caring for each other. And I thought, wow, I've got to keep my priorities right. I've been called not just to minister to those who are lonely, but to minister to those in need. I've been called to preach the word. That requires study. That requires a lot of work. I don't have time to do that if I'm just listening and sharing tea and cookies. So some things have to be done. And I'm so grateful that when I came to Chatham, I understood that, and you accepted me on that basis you've given me the freedom to minister you've given me the time needed to study you haven't overburdened me with with expectations that could never be met i'm thankful for that i think a preacher needs to set his priorities and paul let his be known he hadn't ignored the christian's in Rome. And he expected them to understand why he hadn't been there. And he assured them again that when he had time, he would fellowship with them. He wanted to fellowship with them. I'm convinced if a man is to be effective in ministry, again, he has to keep his priorities in order. But that does not mean he ignores those things that appear to be mundane duties in the ministry. An effective minister even administers the physical, verses 25 through 29. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now, the first thing that strikes me here is that Paul wasn't too spiritual to be involved in the physical needs of the church. He couldn't come to Rome immediately because he had to deliver an offering to the church in Jerusalem. In his travels, he'd encouraged the Gentile Christians to help the needy Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and he volunteered to actually take their offering to them himself. Now, I find that interesting. Because there are many ministers who would want nothing to do with such a material endeavor. They wouldn't want to be bothered with the day-to-day administrative responsibilities of the church. But well, Paul didn't avoid that area of ministry. And I don't feel a minister can avoid it today if he's to be effective. Now, obviously, we can't spend all of our time in administrative duties. But I think a minister must see to it that behind-the-scenes details are carried out. And if there's a need that needs to be addressed, he addresses it if he can. And plans and programs need to be carried out, might need his input and his detail. I think it's important. We can't just hide ourselves in an ivory tower and pretend that uh, we're too spiritual to be involved in work in the nursery or cleaning toilets. That's part of the ministry. That's important. I think it's very important. And it's important that he be involved in maybe even financial matters. You know, sometimes it's not the preacher's fault that things that need to get done don't get done. Many churches handcuff their ministers by not giving them the freedom to make decisions and carry out details without checks and double checks at every point. Some churches are are committed to death. And the preacher can do almost nothing. But Paul was entrusted with administrative responsibilities. The Christians from Macedonia and Achaia trusted that he would be a good steward of their money and that he would use it the way it was intended. Now, I believe there should certainly be limits on the freedom a minister is given. No one should have the responsibility of single-handedly making all the decisions. That's why we have elders, plural, nor should he handle the money. But a minister should not be afraid of involvement in the physical areas of church life, and he shouldn't be afraid to talk about the material. Paul wasn't afraid to talk about money. He taught that those who receive spiritual things should share their material things with those who had shared with them the spiritual. And we should be willing to financially support the work of the church and make it possible for others to receive what we have found in Christ. And much of that is dependent upon the material resources from which the church has to draw. We live in a material world, and it takes material to get the job done we've been commissioned to do. An effective minister, isn't afraid to get involved in this area. And finally, an effective minister involves his people. Verses 30 through 33. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. You know, Paul shared his goals and ambitions as well as his needs with the people. And he told them how they could share In his ministry. It was their mutual ministry. And even if they couldn't be with him physically. They could pray for him. They could be involved in what was being done. You know I have a little struggle with that sometimes. I have a tendency to just do things. And not stop and think. How can I get someone else involved? Sometimes it seems easier. Back when I was a youth minister, I thought it was easier to be the youth sponsor for every youth group than to get youth youth group sponsors. (laughs) And so we had meetings all through the week so I could do it all. It may have worked, but it didn't work. Because it's not my job. It's not Mark's job here. It's our job together. We need to be involved in ministry together. Together we do what Christ has called us to do. And we need to be looking for opportunities to involve people in ministry so they have some ownership in what's being done, not just support of what's being done. Paul realized that they had a mutual ministry. Even though he was away from them physically, they could be involved in his ministry. They could be prayer warriors. Bonnie talks about that a lot. And Bonnie is one of our prayer warriors who leads us in a lot of prayer for each other. Some who've left us, Norma Chasco is a prayer warrior for us. I just got an encouraging letter from her this week that just made my day. We need to be doing that for each other. And Paul made that possible. He wanted the Christians in Rome to be able to strive together with him in prayer. And they were to be together, not, not just for the hard times, but the good times as well. He said he openly anticipated the refreshing rest that he would find in their company. And he sought joy and peace for them. He wanted the body to enjoy itself as well. And I think that's important. Sometimes we, we minimize the importance of fellowship and just getting together. Now, I'm not a game player. My kids can testify to that. Board games, eh. But some really neat things take place when some of you all get together and play games together. And you did, went out to Lakeside and did, what was that thing you did? Trivia night. Oh, that's terrible. Trivia night. <laughs> oh, really bad. <laughs> huh. yeah, yeah. Yeah. We did well? Okay. Well, good. Good. I wasn't there, so you did well. That's good. See, these are kinds of things that are important. You know, fellowship in the church isn't just Bible study and prayer. Now, that's important, and that's what we do. That's a priority. But just being together and having fun together is also a priority. Even after you all worked so hard packing all those packages, I understand you went to an adult Chuck E. Cheese. Is that what it was? Dave and Buster, never heard of it. But you had a good time together. And you made some memories together. That's important. Take advantage of that. You know, sometimes, sometimes we think that all we should do in church is come and listen and put in our offering and take communion and go home. If that's all you do, that's, that's a start. But go ahead. Take advantage of other opportunities to be together in study, in fellowship, in fun times, and in work. There are jobs that can be done around here. Find things to do. I think it's really, really important that we do things together. We have a shared ministry. Paul felt he was a team, even with the church in Rome, and he kept them involved in ministry together. They were dependent upon each other and on the Lord they sought to serve. Well, I think that's the bottom line in the effectiveness of ministry. It's a recognition that without each other and without him, we really can do nothing. Paul recognized that fact, and I think we do too, at least we try to. And we want to collectively and individually acknowledge the need for the Lord in our life and for each other. In our life. God has gifted us in different ways. Your gifts are different than my gifts but all those gifts are what makes the church a body, a full body. And that's what we are. That's what we strive to be. And I can be an effective minister if I can help you minister together with each other and with me. But, of course, without him, we can do nothing. We don't get our direction from secular leadership philosophy. We get our direction from the one who has called us to minister and to serve and to trust and to be what he's called us to be. Without him, no matter how successful we might appear to be, we're a failure. Because without him, we can do nothing. Let's acknowledge that. And let's live it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.